This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's quite a different thing to try to penetrate the flight deck to pull an emergency, you know, exit, shoot, to punch a flight attendant. This is interfering and assaulting uh, flight attendants. And the Association of Flight Attendants has made a big priority to try to make sure that we punish these individuals. And I don't blame them one bit. Yep. Ken Quinn, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Sure. That does it for us tonight. Thanks for watching. Banfield starts now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Wednesday. It's hump day. It's also Thursday Eve, which is, you know, Thursday's Friday Eve, so we're almost there. Uh, really good to have you here. Thank you so much for, for joining the program tonight. If you were watching last night, and by the way, I think a lot of you were, so thank you, um, you would know that yesterday was uh, an anniversary of sorts that is very hard for a lot of people. Um, especially those who are over 50. But the under 50s, they know because of Netflix and Hulu and documentaries about uh, the Tate-LaBianca murders in August of 1969, August 8th and August 9th. So today is sort of day two of a long spate of murders that turned the summer of love into the summer of terror and then kind of launched the name Charles Manson in our lexicon uh, forever and ever. Certainly, there have been serial killers who have done far uh, higher body counts and grisly torture crimes, etc. This was horrible. But the whole family cult element to it and the randomness of the crimes, it just kind of launched this story into the zeitgeist of America. It's like popular culture and popular lore. And it's actually terrifying when you hear the names Charles Manson. What you may not know is that there were other victims that lived. And some of them are his family. I know that is odd because we often talk about the Tate family and the detritus left behind with Sharon Tate and her four guests and all of those people who suffered immensely from those murders. And then Rosemary and Lino LaBianca, who died this night, August 9th. 1969, and their family. That is a wake of hell left behind. But Charles Manson had a family too. His son was Charles Manson. Imagine living with that name. He changed it to Charles White. And he had a son who is my guest tonight. Jason Freeman is going to join me to talk about this anniversary, living with this lore, and what he is doing for other people who have gone through their own personal hell connected to notorious crime. I cannot wait for this interview. I talked with him today. He's like, you know, he's a guy who's processing a lot. Every anniversary, it's been going on for 54 years. Every anniversary he processes this as a grandchild. He had nothing to do with it. But he is a victim too. You're going to hear from him uh, shortly. And then there's this issue what happens when notorious killers, serial killers, 
either die in prison or are executed in prison. What happens to their remains? There is an entire story to tell about some of the most prolific and notorious serial killers and what happened after they died. Jason Freeman, the grandson of Charles Manson, has his own story about having to fight other people who claim to be descendants of Charles Manson to actually bury his grandfather. That is an entire story in itself you're going to hear. But there are other serial killers who, when they were uh, executed or died in prison, nobody cared. Nobody came. And still others whose best friends came. And then scattered ashes. Tonight on the program, Eileen Warnos's best friend is going to join me to talk about her journey. Because up until Eileen Warnos was the subject of a movie called Monster and one of the most notorious serial killers, a female, she was just someone's best friend from childhood. And there is a story to tell about what happened with those ashes as well. I also have news tonight on that Cinderblock cell terror story out of uh, sort of close to Portland and also Seattle, right? A, a woman was kidnapped in Seattle. She was driven 450 miles down to an area, Klamath Falls near Portland. She was imprisoned in a cinder block prison that was crafted in someone's garage and she got out. She escaped. She told the police they found the cinder block cell. There it is on your screen. They found the guy who built it. They arrested the guy who built it. His name is Nagasi Zuberi. He's the alleged attacker the alleged kidnapper, the alleged rapist, and they think he may be responsible for a lot more. And guess what? There's more. Like every night, new development. The woman who's the mother of his children, the woman who he sued on Judge Judy, go back and look at Monday's show. Well, she's got a couple of things to say about that cinderblock prison that was found in her garage. And wait until you hear her story as to what she thinks the cinder block prison was for. Let me just say you're not going to change the channel on that one. Let me start with this, this day. Um, August 9th, it lives in infamy. It is part of a three-day stretch where Charles Manson and his followers, the Manson family, uh, indiscriminately murdered random victims. Sharon Tate, famous actress, wife of director Roman Polanski, had some friends over. Polanski's traveling. They are slaughtered in their home. That was last night's anniversary. But the next night, some of the same and a few more Manson followers went down the street to Rosemary and Lino LaBianca's house. They, again, random grocery store executive and slaughtered them too, writing helter-skelter, spelling it wrong, in the victim's blood. And helter-skelter became a term of lore. Yes, it was a Beatles song before. And yes, Charles Manson, the man who orchestrated this, Loved the Beatles and loved the expression, but Helter Skelter is most often associated with the killings in the summer of love that turned to the summer of terror in 1969. So Charles Manson was uh, sentenced to death, as were the others. That was commuted when California did away with the death penalty, commuted to life in prison for most of them. <clears throat> One got out a couple weeks ago, um, Leslie Van Houten. Uh, Patricia Krenwinkel is up for parole coming up in a couple more months. We're going to follow that. But there's an expression I use on the show a lot. It's called toe-tag parole. Toe-tag parole means you're never leaving. You're never leaving that institution unless you're wearing a toe-tag. That was the story of Charles Manson. And 
What's fascinating is what happened to Charles Manson's body after he died. There was a fight between people who said they were descendants of Charles Manson and the man who actually is a descendant of Charles Manson, his grandson. Four months ensued and Charles Manson's body was left in a fridge, not even a freezer. I want you to take a look at this documentary that was released afterwards about this entire story that is just completely baffling. It's called Charles Manson, The Funeral. Um, the documentary was released on the Reels Network and it tells the story of Jason Freeman, Charles Manson's grandson, and the funeral that he eventually was able to put on for his grandfather, Charles Manson. Take a look. You don't really want to be known for being killer's grandson. My grandfather caused a lot of pain, but everybody needs to be taken care of when they die. The followers, there's some, some real... On the trolley. What the hell is going on? The casket is open. Charles Manson, The Funeral. I have watched that documentary. It is very eye-opening, if not for the battle that Jason Freeman had to go through just to claim his grandfather's remains. The people who attended as friends, as followers, as devotees, and then the story of what happened once Charles Manson was cremated. And there is no better person to tell that story than the man who lived it. And the only person who can tell you what it's like to be the grandson of Charles Manson. Jason Freeman joins me live now. Um, Jason, thank you for, for being on with me tonight. I know this is difficult for you yeah. because you have lived your life under this um, umbrella of, of weight, of the pain of being associated with Charles Manson. And, and you are a victim too. Mm -hmm. As a family member, you did no wrong. You had no part of this, but it is difficult. Tell me from your perspective what it's like growing up as Charles Manson's grandson. Well, first I want to say, uh, you know, it's hard for me to come on after the great introduction that you gave um, with the with the murders and, and the um, with the dates all lining up to be here right now. And because um, I'm a smiling man and I have a lot of love in my heart and uh, to think about those murders or people dying in general, uh, you know, really hurts my heart because, because I love people. And, um, but as for growing up, um, it really hit me in my, uh, eighth grade year when, um, Mr. Wright had it set up to have my grandfather as our, as our topic for the full day. So each class, um, got to have the same topic of uh, Charles Manson's uh, killings and killing spree was um, interacted throughout <laughs> every student. So by the time that day was over, um, it was, I felt a little different. And it, I mean, it, sometimes the feeling of knowing who I was came and it, and it went. Because I could feel it from the community every now and then, but it wasn't a rich topic that was that was talked about. It was more of a hidden topic that was kept as a secret. And whenever students would bring it up, 
um, and it would get back to a teacher or I'm sorry, someone's. I can still hear you. I know there's some problems with the, the Zoom link. I do want to ask you, though, yeah. um, we talked earlier today and, and we had a conversation about yes. um, what's in a name. And your father's name was Charles Manson. He changed it to Charles White. His tombstone says Charles White. Um, ultimately, he yes. took his life. Do you think uh, part of the reason he took yes. his life was because of the pain and suffering of being a descendant of, of, of your grandfather? Yeah, there's no... There's no doubt in my mind that a lot of stuff from his past would drive him into um, not wanting to be a part of this world anymore. Um, I can see it. Uh, um, I even share about it in my Decide to Fight program. Um, I share about how, how we have to put our things of our past behind us and we have to really understand how to. And I don't think my father really had that chance to bury oh, um, a lot of the things that were haunting him for most of his life. And, and whenever he got a divorce, um, I, I believe after that divorce that that was the kicker for him to, um, man, I'm so sorry. That's okay. But, uh, I know that we're on Zoom and, and probably messages are, are coming in because um, we're live. I do, I do want to oh, mention uh, something about okay. your wife, Audrey. Um, your wife, Audrey, has been remarkably supportive of you throughout your journey to understand who you come from, who you are, and to lay to rest. Um, the, the man who, who is your grandfather. And, and I think, as, as you put it, you know, yeah. um, this is your quote. I just wanted to stick him in the ground and put the boogeyman to sleep. You know, it's understandable how you and Audrey are connected. What is harder to understand is the people who came to the to the funeral. Tell me your read on the guests who came to, to memorialize your grandfather. Yeah. Well, the, the boogeyman uh, term was um, how society has has portrayed my grandfather, you know, and where he's, uh, where he's placed himself. And that's where that comes from. And, um, I had my mind stuck on that. What was your question? I'm sorry. I missed, Maybe, I missed the last thing you said there, Jason. I, I wanted to, the question, um, I think you were asking yeah, me to repeat it. I couldn't hear again? you, but the question is, yeah, yeah. The, in the documentary I watched, um, I was sort of fascinated by the guests who attended um, the, the funeral that you threw. You yeah. didn't know them necessarily. Uh -huh. They weren't friends of yours. Tell me about those guests and what you thought about them and the reason they were there. Yeah, there was a few, a few people that really were beside my grandfather back in the seventies and they were friends of my grandfather's for quite some time. And it would, it's important for them to be there. And most of the guests were meant to be there. A few probably shouldn't have been there. 
but I have a kind heart and I was in, I was in California. I was online with a few different people from California as all this stuff unraveled. Once my grandfather passed away, um, I started getting a lot of attention, which I had to keep that at, at bay. Can I ask you one of the, the stories we talked about today, um, which I found fascinating, yeah. was there's all sorts of sort of, you know, re- reporting and, and guesswork on what happened to your grandfather's ashes. But the definitive story is, is that after that open casket funeral, it, I think about 20 or so people attended, there was a cremation yeah. that they were invited to be uh, part of as well, and then the scattering of ashes. And something I didn't know was that you had allowed... Um, those those guests to actually um, be a part of it. You handed the ashes around, and they many of them took some uh, for their own purposes. Do you know what some of them uh, did with the ashes? Um, I've seen which everybody there. I really truly wanted everybody to feel a part of this scene in in the documentary. Um, in the scene for the documentary and I really wanted everybody to be in it. So, um, I just, it just, something came over me and I felt that urge to let everybody be a part of it. And when they, when they grabbed the ashes and they went off and did their own thing, or if they spread them right there or if they put them in their pocket for for later if they wanted to do something on their own i wanted to give everybody that chance to um have a moment of their own you know there's a lot of people that spent a lot of time with my grandfather have done a lot of things for him and it just felt like the right thing to be involved with and is it true that um um at least one of the guests at the funeral took ashes and mixed it into tattoo ink and then either tattooed on himself or tattooed on himself and others the word helter skelter uh with your grandfather's ashes mixed into the ink well that that sounds that sounds scary like if somebody would do something like that uh, i i can i can only pray for them but I've seen the artwork, and that is exactly what it is. And I and I heard uh, that my grandfather's ashes were used. So let me ask you about your relationship. I know that you had um, had conversations with your grandfather when he was in prison. Uh, you were able to write letters back and forth. What were the last words yeah. that he? said to you? Well, some of his last words were uh, just to just to always live free, just to live free and not to um, always know your value as a person, as a human. He shared with me a lot of what it meant to be alive relating to Mother Earth, animals, water, trees, you know, a lot of what we're 
fighting back against these days uh, with the environment. We're, we're more tuned in, you know, so that's a lot of what my grandfather really wanted me to share and pass on is to take Mother Earth seriously and try your best to make a difference each and every day. Let me ask you, Jason, you have decided um, in order to sort of work with the burden that you live with, um, with your identity, to help other people who have been through the trauma of being associated with notorious crime. Can you just tell me a little bit about what your plans are? Yes, um, we've created uh, outreach. It's Frontline Warriors Community Outreach, and we work with the youth, and, and we work in prison ministry also. And we combine God's word with fitness and martial arts, and we and we blend life skills together, and we just help live life with the next generations coming up. And I remember being young, and I know what I had to go through to get to where I'm at. I think of my grandfather. I think of I think of what he had to go through. Um, as a kid to get to where he was and he didn't go down the right path after so many years. And I, I, I really feel that all the experience that I have in life with my ups and downs also, because I, I fell on my head multiple times and I've always gotten back up. So that's the most important part is to always get back up. And that's what I want to share is we, you know, we go around this world one time and everything that I've gained, it's, it's got to have a purpose. It's, it's got to have a direction. And, and I found my purpose. I found my direction and I'm thankful that God's given me this platform to, share my vision of, of truly making a difference in our communities around here in Florida, up in Ohio, back where I'm from, and just truly doing life with the next generation and, and, and helping them understand what's to come. And that's, yeah. that's our focus point because I, I just left a, youth camp for four days and these young men a lot of them didn't have a mom or they didn't have a dad and they have never been introduced to understanding who god is so this opportunity for these four days really opened up my eyes to still understand where i come from where my father came from and where his father came from. And it, it just makes me um, energized on the inside to know that God is using me for a bigger purpose than what I could ever imagine. I, um, I, I'm so thankful that you shared that uh, because I think it's, it's hard for people to understand how hard it is 
uh, to be on the other side of these tragedies, to be associated um, with uh, the, the criminals themselves. You are not one. You had nothing to do with it. And yet you have suffered as a victim as well. Jason Freeman, thank you for taking the time, especially on this very difficult anniversary, to, to speak with us about this. I really appreciate it. And I hope we can mm. speak again sometime. Thank you very much. Jason Freeman joining us live tonight. You know, um, I was thinking about today being a really important date from 1969, and then it occurred to me that it is also another very important date with regard to another notorious crime, and that is the death of a little girl in Florida at the age of two, Kaylee Anthony. Today is her birthday, and if you can believe this, today would be her 18th birthday. That little girl, had she not been murdered and tossed in a swamp, in Orlando, Florida, would be 18. She was reported missing July 15th of 2008. Her mother charged with first degree murder in October of that year. Casey Anthony was acquitted of that murder in July of 2011. Kaylee Anthony's birthday today would have been 18 years old. Coming up after the break, um, what is incredible is what happens to other serial killers when they die. Charles Manson was claimed by his grandson and given a burial. That does not happen with all of them. Some are left and no one wants any part of them. I'm going to tell you who, and you might be surprised. I'm also going to tell you what happened with Eileen Warnos's ashes. And her best friend is here to tell the story herself because she, she came forward when no one else would. That's next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. What do you do with a dead serial killer? I know that is a really weird question, but it happens, right? You either get toe tag parole, which means you're leaving in a, a box with a tag on your toe, um, or you get executed. That's what happens usually with serial killers after they are sent to prison. So what do you do with them? What do the prisons do? Well, there are some interesting stories, and I'm going to tell you a few. Let's start with Ted Bundy. You know who he is. He died by electric chair in 1989. That was because he killed 36 women. Uh, it was sort of a big TV event. Millions of people watched the day that he was going to be executed. Uh, it's weird to say that his brain was removed so that they could study abnormal behavior. He was ultimately cremated, and his ashes were scattered over the Cascade Mountains in Washington State. This was his request. What's weird is that it was the same mountain range where he dumped at least four of his victims. That's interesting. Jeffrey Dahmer was beaten to death in his prison cell. Uh, it was Columbia Correctional Institution in Portage, Wisconsin. That was in 1994. He killed 17 men and boys. His brain was also preserved uh, but he was cremated, the rest of them, while his parents were fighting over what to do with that brain. Um, you know, mom wanted it analyzed, dad did not, dad won. And so ultimately the brain was cremated separately a couple months later. Parents each got half 
of his remains after that cremation. Charles Manson, you heard, he died of cardiac arrest. This was in 2017. He was 83 years old. And um, four months he was in a refrigerator while people who said he was a sibling or a a descendant, uh, they were a descendant, battled. And ultimately, Jason Freeman got the remains, had the open casket funeral, cremated them, and you heard about the ashes there. John Wayne Gacy. That was the clown. He was executed by lethal injection. That happened in 1994. He killed 33 men and boys. According to Find a Grave, he was cremated. Um, Some claim that his sister was given the ashes. According to a Chicago Tribune article, a psychiatrist named Helen Morrison actually has his brain in her basement, preserved slices of his organs, says that Gacy wanted her to do this in case there would be new techniques developed to figure out why he did what he did. Eileen Warnos was the serial killer prostitute, subject of that incredible movie, uh, Monster. It was an Oscar winner, a Golden Globe winner. Uh, it was 2003 when that movie came out, all about uh, Eileen Warnos. Charlize Theron was unbelievable. Here is a quick clip to remind you. Take a look. And that really was what it looked like in the courtroom. So she was uh, executed by lethal injection in 2002. She also was cremated. And then her childhood best friend, Dawn Botkins, actually took Eileen Warnos's ashes home when nobody else wanted to claim them. And she actually buried them under a walnut tree in her backyard. How do I know that? Because Dawn Botkins is live with me now. Don, thank you so much for uh, being on the program tonight. How did you um, how did you end up being so close to Eileen Bornos? How did I what? How did you end up being best friends with Eileen Warnos? Oh, when we were kids we went to school together. When we were fifteen to sixteen to seventeen and we both quit at the same time. I just hung out. So I know we have a long (laughs) delay between us because of our broadcast, so I'm sorry if I step on an answer or a question, but I'll ask a question, then it'll be a little time before you'll answer. Uh, Is it true that you brought her ashes home, buried them under uh, the walnut tree, and wanted to keep it uh, secret? And I guess the addition to that question is, have crime tourists come to see this location at any point Uh, since that time. Well, she wanted me to put her on Flagler's Beach. That was her first thing she said. And I said, no, people in Florida don't want you here. You killed seven men, so you're coming home to my house. (laughs) That's how she got here. Tell me about the day that you spent uh, four hours with her right before her execution. Can you tell me what what that visit was like right before she was put to death. What did you do? It was an excellent visit. We had four hours, like I said. Got to bring her in some food. We laughed and laughed and laughed about the whole four hours. She was exhausted, but she got to eat, and we got down on our knees and prayed together. You know, she just was the best visit we ever had. 
she went straight to bed. They had to wake her up the next morning for her own execution. <laughs> I can't figure that one, but that's, most people can sleep. That's a hard, so hard to believe. So hard to believe she fell asleep before uh, her execution. I have this one last question for you. I only have a few moments left, but do you ever feel strange? I mean, I understand you were friends with her before she ever became who she became. But do you ever feel strange about honoring her under right. the, the tree in your, in your backyard, given what she did to all those men? Nope, I didn't. I wanted her here because, I mean, my family isn't crazy about it at all. You know, but they, they respected the fact that I was her friend. I loved her as my friend. Not for anything she did, not anything about the murders. I didn't want to talk about them with them. We talked about everything else. Hmm. Were you ever able to, to forgive her, or do you have that second side of the Eileen Warnos you really wish didn't what? exist? I'll say that again. I didn't understand. I just wonder if you, if you ever felt there was another side of her that you just really wish never existed. Oh, yeah, the bad side. No, I just brought out the best side. You know, and I was lucky enough to get it from her. She was one of the best friends in the world. She was full of love, compassion, funny, artist. She just, nobody gave her that chance to be all that. And I did. <laughs> And once again, you know, we, we fail to recognize too often the people who are left behind on the other side of the crime, the friends and family members who are just devastated by what their loved one has yeah. done. Don Botkins, thank you for being on tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. That's it. Coming up next, the uh, very latest on that story out of um, the Portland, Oregon area and the Seattle area, that that cinder block cell that was discovered in a man's garage and the mugshots that have been coming out since. Just what exactly did the mother of his children think was going on in that cinder block cell in her garage? Well, after the break, you're sure going to hear it and you are not going to believe what she says. It's next. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com. You know that whole cinder block cell that was found crafted in the garage of um, that man in uh, Oregon, near Portland, Oregon, that, that cell right there that had a woman locked inside who escaped. 
Well, that man had a partner, like the mother of his kids. And last week, a local journalist there, Adrian Thomas from Fox 12 Portland, had a chance to sit down with her and ask her what she thought about that, um, that cell that was in her garage, that cell that led to the arrest of her partner, uh, Nagasi Zuberi. And wouldn't you know it, what she actually said to the reporter about what that cell was for? Have a look. It's a, it's a lie. There's, he never, never, ever, like everywhere I know him, like he never, ever brings something like, uh, builds something like that. All this man is doing is trying to expand subleasing. Oh, that was for subleasing. Oh, that cell that was windowless, locked from the outside. Locked from the outside with blood all over it because the woman bloodied herself getting out. That was for subleasing. So she did not want to be identified. She hasn't been seen since that interview. We believe that woman is Alicia Westfall because she was the same woman who apparently showed up on the Judge Judy show with her then partner, Nagasi Zuberi. Weirdly, they're still living together. So that's her garage, right? It's all just bonkers. But she does say this about uh, the father of her kids, who's now under arrest, suspected of being a serial rapist and and maybe even killer. Uh, He's a good person, someone with dreams, someone who helped her apply to school. Our News Nation West Coast correspondent Nancy Liu is live right now in Seattle where the kidnapping happened. 450 miles she was driven down to that home in that cell down near Portland, Oregon. Uh, So you're in Seattle. You've had a chance to poke around there. Have the FBI been able to catch up with that that wife slash baby mama slash partner slash that's a cell used for subleasing? No. Yeah. She was last seen and heard in Klamath Falls where that interview took place. We don't know what's happened to her since. The focus, though, is on her partner, Nagasi Zaberi, and the FBI does have him in custody. But we are in Seattle. This is Aurora Avenue, Ashley, and this is the area where that victim was kidnapped, driven 450 miles down to Klamath Falls. Uh, I did get a chance today to speak one-on-one with the assistant special agent in charge of the FBI office in Portland. They are spearheading this investigation. Stephanie Shark, uh, she tells us that tips are coming in, but she's worried that sex workers are afraid to come forward with more tips. But it's been exactly a week since they announced the arrest, and they are certain, take a listen, that they have taken a serial predator off the streets. We have made daily progress on this investigation to include identifying victims, to identifying some sites um, where we can obtain some evidence um, and widening the search and the connections with law enforcement throughout the country. And this is all over the country. Absolutely. His behaviors have indeed been escalating based off of the information that we've identified as to where he was going with these behaviors. Um, There is only reason to indicate it would have continued to escalate and that this was not the start of it and this was definitely not the end. And the fact that we saw a makeshift cell in a garage that we knew several months prior was not there. And to see plans for something that he would build underground to house prisoners, um, it speaks for itself. 
And Ashley, since that kidnapping here in Seattle, Seattle police have moved in to shut down two motels, the Emerald Motel as well as the Seattle Inn. And I'm told by workers in this area that usually there are about 30 or 40 girls working this stretch of Aurora. But since the sweep, since the kidnapping, we haven't seen anyone out here, one or two girls, and none of them had ever seen Nagasi Zuberi before. Oh, wow. I mean, I understand why they'd be terrified. Nancy Liu, great work in getting that special agent interview. Thank you for that. Nancy's been doing just terrific work covering this story, and we're just at the tip of the iceberg. Okay, coming up next, some pretty incredible new details on that missing mom of five. You know the one who went hiking at like 6 o'clock at night and then didn't come home? And then the boyfriend called 911 at 11, and then the next day she was found? Well, the man who found her is talking. The police won't say what condition she was in that led them to believe it was homicide. But he is, and his daughter is. You're going to hear it next. Ever since Sunday, we've been trying to figure out what happened to Rachel Marin. Mother of five, beautiful woman, went for a hike Saturday night, never came home, found dead on the hiking trail, actually just off the hiking trail on Sunday. And the condition in which she was found was so bad they knew right away it was homicide. But they're not saying why. They're not saying what the details are. That's the police. But the man who found her, his name is Michael Gabrzecki. He was out looking with his daughter, who's Rachel's friend, and another friend of theirs. And they made the discovery. And he is talking. Have a listen. This is what he told uh, the channel uh, WMAR. And I kept telling them to search the tunnels because I had a feeling about those tunnels. And I walked forward to search the one tunnel, and they searched the one, and that's where they found her. Again, that is uh, Michael Gabrzecki, who made the discovery with his daughter and his daughter's friend. The tunnels we think he might be referring to are like drainage culverts, possibly. Um, but police have gotten about 90 tips. So far, though, nothing. It has not yielded a suspect. Here is how the uh, sheriff put it. Take a look. We understand uh, this homicide causes a lot of concern, causes a lot of concern for us, for our partners in the allied law enforcement agencies, um, and, and the safety of our citizens. Uh, the trail is one of our major um, parks and recs assets uh, that runs through parts of a lot of parts of the different uh, through Hartford County. Um, and we understand that this is going to cause a lot of concern. Right now, there there's nobody that I would put and say that we have a possible, this person is a possible suspect. Zero. All right, so I'm joined now by Colonel William Davis. He's the chief deputy of the Harford County Sheriff's Office. Um, sir, can you tell me what it was that the, the man who found uh, Rachel's body, what he saw that made him believe right away it was murder? Uh, actually, I can't really say what he saw because from our investigators, he was not on the scene and he did not see uh, the body of Ashley at the crime scene. I mean, I'm sorry, I said, Rachel. I said that. Um, Rachel. So yes, Rachel. That, no, understandable. Um, but now his daughter and the daughter's friend were also searching. Did, were they referring to drainage culverts when he said tunnel? Um, as, you, as, as you're aware, um, there's a lot of false information that's being put out about the crime scene. And 
the reason we're trying to hold this close to the vest is because we want it to be that the only people that know what that crime scene looked like and uh, what possible injuries were to Rachel would be us and the potential killer. Because putting that information out there could hurt our investigation and will hurt our investigation. So we're keeping that as so, close to the vest as possible. That makes perfect sense. You know, Colonel uh, Davis, I hope you can come back and, and help us out as we continue to sort of plod through this and try to find who did this. It's a really terrifying prospect for people in your community. But I do thank you for coming on tonight. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. It's good to have you, and, and we hope for, you know, the best. We certainly hope for uh, that that will yield some information soon. Coming up, I have another crime. This one's a little lighter because it's been a heavy show. This is Barbie crime. It's a theme this week, uh, and this one's fashion crime. But um, this is a crime that could make Mattel <laughs> millions. Wait till you see it. It's next. Tonight's This Week in Barbie crime story is Kate McKinnon. She steals the show. And I say that because there are huge superstars, Margot Robbie and Will Ferrell and Ryan Gosling. But, but Kate McKinnon's character, Weird Barbie, is really, really uh, now running away with it. Take a look. Hello? Hmm? Humans. We're fine. And Alan. Mm. Come into my weird house. Hi. I'm Weird Barbie. I am in the splits. I have a funky haircut and I smell like basement. Oh, my God. I had a weird Barbie. Yeah, you did. <laughs> well, Weird Barbie is awesome with her scissor-chopped hair. A mail order only until August 18th. The Mattel website is selling her for 50 bucks. If that is not a crime, I don't know what is, but I'm going to get one. Hey, keep it real. Keep it weird. Stay tuned for Cuomo. It's Chris Cuomo. It's Wednesday. We're live. So what do you say? Let's get after it. We're following this developing story. Last night, we broke news that mental health records for the U.S. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.